Yes, as you heard, we sent Denny to England. <laughs> I spent 18 years living in Cairo. Um, from 1993 until six months after the January 2011 revolution. And for the first two years of that time, I studied Arabic. Now, please don't pass this on to any Westmont undergrads in the church, but I was a terrible student. In fact, after about three months, my Arabic teacher told me, Jim, trying to teach you Arabic is like blowing air into a paper bag with holes in it. <laughs> One of the things that we did, however, in our Arabic classes, we, we learned Arabic proverbs. For example, Ibn Bat Awen, which means the son of a duck floats, <laughs> which you may recognize as the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or, Bebinagar Machalla, which means the door of the carpenter is falling off. Which you might recognize as the cobbler's kids have no shoes. You see, in every culture, proverbs are a repository of wisdom and the accumulated experience of a people. And so it is with the Proverbs in the Bible. Now this church relies on the lectionary to guide its preachers, so you just can't choose any text you feel like preaching on. We have three New Testament readings each week and an Old Testament one. But I feel that we need a bit more exposure to the Old Testament readings. So the text I chose from the lectionary today is from Proverbs chapter 31. Now, in another break from tradition, rather than me reading the text, I'd like us all to read the text together. So I'm going to ask you to stand up. Now, I know it's a bit annoying because you've just sat down, you've got a mint now in your mouth, you've found a good spot on the horizon. But bear with me, we're going to stand together, please. And um, it's funny, isn't it, how when we read out loud, we adopt a Siri voice. You know, um, da 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 da. Um, this text is an extraordinarily rich, supple text that has been speaking to people all over the world for two and a half millennia. Let's read it with some feeling. Okay, so we'll read out loud this Bible text for today. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her, and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax, and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night, provides food for her family, and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it, 
Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she hosts the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh all the days of come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Father God, we pray that you would speak now, speak so clearly that even we cannot mistake your voice. Amen. Please be seated. So for those of you who are fans of This American Life and Ira Glass, our show today is in three acts. Act 1, Wisdom and Women. Act 2, Wisdom and Wesley. Act 3, Wisdom and the Web. Act 1, Wisdom and Women. Now, there may be one or two women present who are feeling slightly uncomfortable following the reading of this text. I say this in a jocular manner, but in fact I'm serious. This text has been used as a text of terror for many women because it holds up such an extraordinary, one might say impossible, standard which many women are then measured against while the men inevitably find them wanting. Now, we frankly don't know exactly when this passage was written, but it was somewhere between 1,500 BCE. And we also don't know for sure what its original author or the community that wrote it intended us to understand in terms of its interpretation. But I think it's fair to say that in the goodness of God, with some humility, I want to suggest that it's not meant to be a yardstick by which all women on the planet are measured. It's rather meant to be an extended metaphor for wisdom. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, because the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. 
especially the rest of a particular book of the Bible. So Proverbs is a great interpreter of this chapter of Proverbs. And we see that in Proverbs, wisdom is its most central theme. So that's the first reason why I suggest this could be an extended metaphor for wisdom. Second, wisdom is often personified in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. Third, this extract from what we read, a wife of noble character who can find, she's worth far more than rubies. Now, there are two other references in Proverbs to something being worth more than rubies. And yes, you guessed it, they're both referring to wisdom. Fourth, because all scripture must be read pastorally, scripture is after all for our flourishing and not for our harm, when we read this passage as though it only applies to women, while the men stand around and clap or more often criticize, that seems to me to be pastorally lacking. And fifth and finally, because of the socio-economic realities of antiquity, maybe 1% of all the women who would have heard this text in it, or read this text in its original audience would have had the social, social or economic means to do most of what it says. I mean, if you're part of the 85% of people who lived in poverty or serfdom, it's pretty difficult to start investing in land projects or have your husband on the local council. So why would the text only speak to 1% and not to 99%? So, I really want to suggest to you that this text applies equally to all of us as a metaphor for wisdom, godly wisdom. Before we move on, however, I don't want to rush past the fact that wisdom is personified here as a woman. I don't think this is a linguistic coincidence. I believe that it's a recognition of something important that's being said about female experience. Now, self-evidently, I'm not saying that all women are wise. However, I am saying that there's something deeply gendered about the human engagement with life. We are male and we are female. Now, I fiercely resist attempts to make our gender prescriptive or determinative. In other words, I don't want you to hear that if you're a man, you have to behave this way, and if you're a woman, you have to behave that way. I don't believe that. But I do think we're simply foolish if we don't recognize the long and dismal history of men seeking to exclude women's voices 
bodies and participation in all human life, including church. Quite apart from being terrible theology, this has inevitably impoverished all of us. So I believe this scripture is calling upon us to work harder, to be more thoughtful about recognizing ways that women's voices are still being ignored and sometimes ridiculed. And if you've been following the Republican Party's process of electing a leader, you may know something about what I'm talking about. Act two, Wisdom and Wesley. So, this text, I don't know, as you were reading it, did you notice how vibrant it was, how full of words of life, how vigorous? I wonder if this presents us with a challenge. Now, like many of you, I started coming to this church not because I was a Methodist. I'm probably more Oriental Orthodox than I am Methodist. No, I was willing to come to this church to commit to it and to become a member of it because of the centrality of people care that I observed here. And I suggest to you that the Wesleyan heritage that this church has is one key reason for that centrality of people care. And it's also a reason for the local and global engagement which this church practices so strongly. I want to suggest to you that Wesleyan theology does not believe in total depravity. I mean, that's a reformed belief. As Methodists, we do believe in Genesis 3. We do believe that humans fell into sin. But we also believe in Genesis 1 and 2 in the goodness of humanity as declared by Almighty God. You see, we don't, as Wesleyans, believe that all humans are evil, hopeless, and vile. We rather believe in C.S. Lewis's elegant phrase that evil is good bent. So yes, the fall means that the imago dei, the image of God, with which our race was bestowed by a loving God, has been cracked. But the gospel is good news because that magnificent image is being restored. And we know that death is no longer our enemy, but it is part of that process of restoration. This is our view of life and of the world. As with all world views, it will condition everything that you see and therefore everything that you do. So, back to Proverbs 31. This is a story of life, of vigor, of pleasure, of love, of culture, of money, of work, of home, of community. We must take note if our narrative, the narrative in your head that is so influential in how you live your life, 
If that narrative has become one in which life is denied, in which culture is feared, in that case we're repudiating the wisdom of the Bible and contradicting the teaching of this church. Because if you believe, however subtly, that the world is on a one-way slide into a deserved oblivion, and the proper focus of our attention should be on heaven, then it's hard to see how you will be an agent of life and of transformation in the communities in which you are a member here on earth. Why would you be involved in those communities? Why would you work hard to put people in their flourishing at the centre of your life? Or why would we do it for the centre of our life as a church? No, the narrative of life is key for all of us. So choose wisely. Choose life. Act three, wisdom on the web. So, a question to you. Is Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, are Proverbs simply an affirmation of common sense? Or worse, are they simply baptizing what we already want with a spiritual sprinkling? After all, the woman in the text seems to be enjoying a mighty, prosperous, successful, rounded, indeed perfect, life. In another age, she would definitely have been asked to write a style blog and open a Twitter account. Hashtag rubies, perhaps? Which would itself have become highly successful. Well, as always, we look to Scripture adequately to interpret Scripture. The three great books of biblical wisdom are Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. Now, Job and Ecclesiastes bring a very important balancing perspective that life is certainly not always easy or meaningful or comprehensible. Good people can suffer terribly and intelligent people can be absolutely baffled by life's complexity and confusion. Proverbs is therefore a necessary third leg of our stool, along with Job and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs says that choices have consequences. Not only bad choices, but also good, life-giving choices. Proverbs says that blessing is possible in this world, as is contentment and community. Our consciences don't need to be so seared that you cannot enjoy the life that God has given you. Indeed, there is a wonderful Jewish prayer. O God, forgive me for all the good things you gave me that I did not enjoy. So Proverbs is life-affirming. But even here, the text interrogates us. Charm is deceptive. 
and beauty is fleeting. Why are we so preoccupied with charm and beauty? How come these dominate popular culture? We live about two hours from Hollywood, as you all know, which peddles this narrative for all it's worth. At some level, I suggest all of us are fascinated by charm and beauty. I'd be astonished if at least 90% of you had not seen some Hollywood product this week. A TV show, a film, an advertisement. And yet most of us realise that charm and beauty don't constitute the good life. We're often somewhat uncomfortable about how they make us feel after a binge session of watching TV or spending hours on the internet. Charm and beauty, at least in their popular expression, have curdled for us, and yet we're still mesmerised by them. I don't want to run this point into the ground, but our call to life in this book is not undiscriminating. Indeed, the whole point of wisdom is that it's discerning. Wisdom knows when we're preoccupied with charm and beauty, or indeed anything else that has all the permanence of smoke. Now, I co-direct the Westmont in Istanbul program with my wife Heather, and each spring semester of the second year, so the even years, we take uh, 25 students to Istanbul for four months. But I have to say that our program is currently facing a huge challenge. No, not from terrorism. No, not from logistics. From the internet. You see, students today can leave America and practically remain in California, in a web of constant connection to home, pets, family, and of course, Pinterest. So we therefore urge them to be hipsters. In other words, people practicing holy internet practice. This is a protocol that we get the students to draft for themselves, because then there's a sporting chance they might actually follow it. It's optional, but we highly encourage it because we want them to self-regulate their connection with the internet, and especially social media, but not only social media, film, music, text, FaceTime, Skype, all of it. We ask them to do this because we believe there are three great outcomes that are endangered by unwise engagement with the internet. So what we say is we want them to be more present in the country in which they're in. We want them to be less self-absorbed. And we want them to be more content. And I want to wrap up this morning by giving each of you the same challenge to be a hipster to have a holy internet practice. I'm certainly not against the internet. It's self-evident that internet is simply technology 
It's how we use it where we engage with values. But who of us has not found ourselves distracted and unable to be present to the person in front of us because we're watching our mobile phones or we're feeling that thrum in our pocket of another text coming in. Even if you're one of those rare people who doesn't have a mobile phone, you've probably been distracted by other people who do. Who of us hasn't been exhausted by always-on syndrome? It's an abiding irony that the internet and email, email was actually devised and popularised as a means of helping people to um, follow work in much more leisure-friendly ways. So instead of needing to be at the office for 60 hours a week, you could be at the office 40 hours a week, but be able to then still check in periodically and make sure there were no crises. The irony, of course, is that in fact the email and other forms of internet communication have simply meant that we've imported work into all of our leisure and family life. This is a crisis. And which of us has not felt that little temptation just to slightly airbrush our image on the web? Not actually dishonest, you understand, but certainly our most charming, beautiful selves living a oh-so-pretty life. This week, and I will close with this, I want to encourage each one of you to think honestly about the internet, to review your practices, to bring them in line with conscience. Pray for wisdom. Think about adopting your own hip. Find accountability. Wisdom and women. Wisdom and Wesley. Wisdom and the web. We started with an Arabic proverb. Let's end with a Jewish one. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you.